The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. EJ, I don't care what they call it. I don't care what whatever Acrisure is, some random insurance company in Michigan. I really don't care at all. Well, it's always Heinz to sponsor. me. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're if you work for Acrisure and you're listening to this. I apologize. It's Heinz Field. It will always be Heinz Field. I'm not calling it anything other than Heinz Field. I was there in person. Saw Renegade in person. The ketchup bottles pouring that are like 30 feet long. It's Heinz Field. But anyway, Steelers Day today. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, probably better than a lot of the Steelers faithful are feeling about the name change. And as far as the pronunciation goes, I get about as far as Acre Heinz Field. <laughs> so... Now, I'm excited to talk about the team. I'm kind of bummed that they're probably going to take the ketchup bottles down, but uh, no, we'll talk about the on-field product, not the oh, around-field product. I hope product. Urinating Tree buys one of them and like puts it oh, behind that his house be, or something. That would be epic. I can just see, well, that's dating myself seriously, but I do that regularly. So um, the final scene from Dr. Strangelove with Slim Pickens riding the bomb down. <laughs> Like urinating tree on a Heinz ketchup bottle with waving the cowboy hat like that. I uh, I would pay good money for that. Full Yinzer. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> he's done. He's you never go full Yinzer. That's full Yinzer. Did I tell you I'm going out to Pittsburgh for a game? Uh, you told me you're going a lot of places and I did not pay attention to all of them. October 16th, I think it is Tampa. Uh, cool. One of my buddies is a, is a season ticket holder. And I think that might be the last time Tom Brady is going to be in Pittsburgh. Uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which is personal safety. But I'm going to that game, seeing Tom's <laughs> last game in Heinz Field, regardless of what the name on the building is. Uh, all right, a little bit of a rant. Sorry. It's not, not our usual intro, but welcome to the 2022 Steelers preview show. We are, God, what, 20-something episodes into this series now? Uh, yep. Halfway through the AFC North most of the way through the AFC period at this point, uh, as we do with every single team preview show. We're going to start off with a little 2021 recap. I apologize in advance to Steelers fans listening to this because there's a lot of unfortunate memories that come with this part, but trust me, we'll get to the niceties, we'll get to the good stuff after that. 
but we got to go through 2021 first. Obviously, finished with a 9-7 record because Mike Tomlin is completely incapable of having a losing season regardless of circumstances. He does not lose. He'll be average. He might be above average, but he's never bad. And that was, once again, a uh, middling, slightly above average season for the Steelers for what many organizations honestly would have been a complete dumpster fire. But Tomlin kept it together, did finish second in the division, did somehow make the playoffs, uh, and then got promptly boat raced by the Chiefs because they were not a, in most years, they were not a playoff caliber team, but lo and behold, they were there. Uh, they were pretty good at Heinz, 6-2, and two, below average on the road, 3-5. and five. And the last five games, they did just enough to sneak in there with the 3-2 and two record. I thought, um, again, despite getting boat raced by like three possessions by the Chiefs, and that game was not not competitive uh, in January, I thought last year was one of Tomlin's finest coaching jobs because, as I mentioned, for most franchises with a lesser head coach, they would not have even gotten close to nine wins. Not even remotely close to nine. That would have been a four or five win team with 90% of head coaches in the NFL. So on that uh, on those grounds, Tomlin had a phenomenal year. This year, looking ahead, you know, potentially improving at the quarterback position, reloading at wide receiver, um, you know, making some changes to the offensive line, which we're going to get into, and overall just having a pretty strong draft class in UDFA group. Theoretically, this will be a better team. Theoretically. Whether they have a better record, depends. The AFC is a, a murderer's row. But theoretically, the 2022 Steelers should be better than the 2021 Steelers. Yeah, before Steelers fans eat us and say that Mitch Trubisky and Kenny Pickett are not better than Ben Roethlisberger, that's not really what we mean. <laughs> what we mean is, in terms of arm talent, you actually have some this year. Ben's arm was gone. It was gone at the end of the previous year, but came back for the last ride, willed them along with Tomlin to, again probably four more wins than they would have gotten um, had they not had the stability that they have. And Tomlin, at this point, to your point, has stacked a lot of those seasons, those finest coaching job seasons, because he will not have a losing record. It's just not in his DNA. He will make sure, no matter what's going on, and there was a lot going on last year, that this team comes out with a chance at the end of the year. And they'll take the chance to go get boat raced by the Chiefs, which they did, because it means they got in. So it'll be interesting to see how the quarterback position stacks up after long-term stability. We'll talk about that. But there's no doubt that Tomlin is one of the best leaders in the NFL, one of the most experienced head coaches. And I got to say, having uh, first time I ever viewed that man in person up close was 2020 <laughs> Senior Bowl. And that guy is the coolest guy in the room, and it's not close. Like, yeah. when he walks in, you can tell. You feel decidedly less cool when Mike Tomlin shows up. You're just like, oh, it's like that. Oh, okay, cool. Got it. He is affable with everybody at this point, and he knows just about everybody in the league. Um, he's had a good number of them on his staff over the over the course of years, and – he is really solid. He offered one of the best quotes of the off season. Somebody asked him in an interview, and this one has stuck with me. It's a couple of weeks ago, and somebody asked him uh, about coaches that say a prospect can't learn, a player can't learn. And they asked him what he thought about that. 
And he said, when you say that, you're seeking comfort because your teaching is struggling. <laughs> Love it. And I was Love like, it. I was like, yeah, at the time I read it. And the next day I was like, yeah. And the day after that, I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. And, and you design educational materials for a living. So yeah. you yourself were like, shit, he's right. Oh, as a teaching and learning nerd, I thought, mm -hmm. like, hey, when do I do that? When do I say, well, they should have figured it out. And then I realized, no, you should have done a better job. Right. And so Tomlin brings that kind of approach, that kind of depth and wisdom and knowledge and approach to players that I think players really resonate to. He will treat them as grown ass men and he expects them to perform that way. But that resonates like he has had and continues to have success with that approach. I just found it so funny. Um, like when you're when you're at an NFL event, whether it's a bowl game, combine, Super Bowl, anything like that, where all the league gets together, there's there's several of those throughout the NFL calendar. Mike Tomlin's one of the only people, and keep in mind, like I when I was at NFL Network for five six years, like we had every head coach, you know, other than. <laughs> other than the obvious ones that would come through uh, and, you know, do interviews and, you know, superstar players and Hall of Famers. At these league events and at media engagements, one of the only men in the NFL sphere that I have ever seen that can be in the same room with a whole bunch of professional athletes and Hall of Famers and other coaches and other scouts and GMs, one of the only men that can walk through a crowd of all these people and they all turn to look at him. Like even his peers, even people that do the same thing that he does for a living can't help but just be like, holy shit, that's Mike Tomlin. Oh my God. Like he, he's his command of a room. It's, it's so easy now to see, like, why he was able to make Ben and Brown and Bell and all these guys work in the same locker room because he's just that dude, man. He's that dude. He's he's never going to be, as you mentioned, uh, he's never not going to be the coolest guy in the room. He's going to be the most respected guy in the room. And I think that's why he's going to be in Pittsburgh for as long as he wants to be because he's that kind of guy, which is probably the best segue, by the way, for our uh, – uh, our look at kind of the, the structure, the power structure of the Steelers as a whole. As I mentioned, Mike Tomlin, year 16 at head coach, been there for a long time, one of the longest tenured head coaches in the league at this point. Omar Khan has actually been there, believe it or not, even longer than Mike Tomlin. Uh, been there for 20-plus years in the organization. First year at general manager, though, he was kind of the top lieutenant for Kevin Colbert for a really long time, multiple decades even. Colbert got there in 2000. Khan got there in 01. And uh, Colbert just retired this past offseason, and after a oddly long search period where everybody kind of knew it was going to be Omar Khan anyway, they finally announced that, yeah, he was going to be the successor. So he took over where Kevin Colbert left off, and considering that Khan had a hand in helping Colbert to build this roster in the first place, that was probably the best possible decision they could have made. 100% and they you know didn't have to look farther than their own division for this model right this was Ozzy moving on and Eric DaCosta they did the same thing Colbert long and distinguished service with building the Steelers roster has kept this team competitive along with Mike Tomlin sort of the two of them in lockstep making sure that 
the Steelers way or the Steelers model was continued. Omar Khan, like you said, has been there, you know, in those same rooms for a couple of decades waiting for his chance. He's been a hot name for three or four years. Every time a GM opening comes up, he's been on the potential list, whether or not he actually interviewed. And Steelers, smart to keep him. They've had success with that model. Nobody understands that model better than him at this point. And they make it official after, yeah, a, a weird weird period of indecision there, it looked like from the outside, but kind of, oh yeah, the faded decision, sure enough. Omar Khan's going to carry forward the legacy that he started with Kevin Colbert. Looking at their coordinators under Tomlin, uh, assistant head coach John Mitchell. I thought that Tomlin was there for a long time, and I thought Khan was there for a long time. <laughs> John Mitchell uh, has been there longer than any of them. 28th year with the franchise, the longest tenured member of the staff by far, obviously. Uh, Matt Canada uh, going into year two at offensive coordinator. Curious to see how things change with a new quarterback because Ben Ben likes what Ben likes and they weren't really doing what Canada was known for with a lot of like the motions and stuff Ben really prefers things to be more static so they didn't really lean into what a lot of what Canada um, has preferred to do in the past with like two and three motions pre-snap just to give a quarterback the best possible picture so I'd be very curious to see if he if he leans more into his quote-unquote, roots with that motion now that uh, it's Mitch and, and, and Pickett there, quarterback. Uh, Terrell Austin, or Terrell Austin, year four with the organization, first as defensive coordinator. You also rem- remember him as the uh, Bengals defensive coordinator about five years ago or so, back in 2018. And then Danny Smith, 10 years with the organization at special teams coordinator. And this was a note that I don't even know where you found this. Um, <laughs> in terms of his Pittsburgh roots, uh, when he coached high school in the Pittsburgh area, he actually tutored none other than Dan Marino at Central Catholic in the late 70s. Yeah, 77-78, he was an assistant coach with Central Catholic, which is a legendary high school, Central Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area. He ends up coaching Dan Marino before he goes to Pitt, before mm-hmm. he goes on to the Dolphins. Um, you know, it's one of those sort of as the world turns NFL coaching notes that you're like, oh, you know, we've been saying it all year. Special teams coordinator, long tenured. You keep them if you got them. They're good ones. And then you're like, and Danny Smith has gone other places too. He's not always been with the Steelers, but yeah, way back when he started as a very young coach, ends up tutoring, you know, a probably 17, 18 year old Dan Marino. Unreal. Pittsburgh high school football, by the way, does not get the credit it deserves for the kind of talent that it puts out there. Um, when you look at uh, like Darrell Revis, uh, Aaron Donald was a local Pittsburgh kid. Obviously, Dan Marino, like the, I would say Hall of Famers per capita in Pittsburgh, I would put up against anywhere in Florida, Texas or California. There's just something in the water out there where even though relatively speaking to like the major major metropolitan areas in the country there's not as many people but damn do they make good football players out there pennsylvania high school football in general doesn't typically get the credit it deserves with that pipeline from not only pittsburgh but uh even north central pennsylvania which Mm -hmm. is really close to where i grew up produces a really tough brand of football players and a lot of those guys go to Pitt, go to penn state um you know in 
when I was growing up, a lot of those guys were getting recruited to go out of state. Um, it is it is a serious high school football state. You know, is it Texas high school football? No. Is it Southern California high school football? No. But is it right there with, you know, people talk about Ohio as a sort of cradle of high school football. Like it's right there. It's literally just across the border and it washes over. There is a lot of talent in that state. Now, assistant coaching wise, uh, again, the, the kind of running theme with this organization is that everybody has been there forever. And this has got to be one of the most rock solid staffs in the entire league in terms of just total experience. It's a really fun mix and some fun names to pull out of the past. One of my favorite parts of doing this segment is like, oh, really? That's where he ended up? And there's a couple of those here on offense. Frisman Jackson, wide receiver, 14 years of coaching experience. That makes me feel really old. Um, but he is a former <laughs> NFL wide receiver for the Browns. Uh, Pat Meyer, their offensive line coach. Steelers have a very strong offensive line tradition. 20 years of coaching experience, nine in the NFL, one of the best in the business. Played in the NFL himself for the Cardinals and the Arena Football League, so another coach that has experience in multiple leagues. Alfredo Roberts, the tight end coach, 23 years of coaching experience. You know, you're noticing the theme. 16 <laughs> in the NFL. He's a former NFL tight end himself. Chiefs and Cowboys played in two Super Bowls with the Cowboys. Long tenured and experienced coach. And Mike Sullivan, the QB coach, is one of the more interesting guys on the staff. Graduated and coached at, graduated from and coached at Army. He is also a graduate himself of the U.S. Army Airborne, Ranger, and Air Assault schools. So I don't think any of the players are going to be messing with Mike Sullivan anytime soon, but he fits right in with that sort of hardcore Pittsburgh Steelers vibe. On defense and special teams, Brian Flores, the senior defensive assistant and linebackers coach, recently the former head coach of the Dolphins. He's going to do wonders with their linebacking core because that's the branch of the tree he came from before he got into head coaching. And Carl Dunbar, I want to talk about Carl Dunbar because mm -hmm. he has worked with everybody. He's their defensive line coach, and everywhere he goes, Pro Bowls follow. So the following names are guys that Carl Dunbar has coached to good seasons. Tommy Harris, Tank Johnson, Jared Allen, Kevin Williams, Pat Williams, Sheldon Richardson, Muhammad <sighs> Wilkerson, Cam Hayward, Stephon Tuitt, Javon Hargrave, and TJ Watt. That's a God. whole lot of Pro Bowls, a whole lot of All Pros. Uh, he also, when he wasn't, when he you know took a break from the NFL, he coached at LSU and Alabama. So those players benefited from his tutelage there. He is a heavily experienced coach at both the college and pro level, and the guys on his lines perform at the top end of the NFL spectrum. So had to mention Carl Dunbar. Uh, when you look at a lot of the defensive linemen that you know, have come out of LSU between, I mean, pretty much the entire decade of the 80s. You know, he was there again in the early 2000s. He was there again in the late 20 teens. You know, he is he is a, an LSU legend, but he's also an NFL legend in the sense that the assistant D-line coaches that have learned under him, um, Carl Dunbar being one of them, learning under Pete Jenkins when they were both at LSU, Dunbar is one of the best disciples of Pete Jenkins, who's like the Dante Scarnecchia of offensive line coaches. And so for Steelers fans listening to this, if you really want to know what Carl Dunbar teaches in his defensive line techniques and why so many of Dunbar's 
pupils have been pro bowlers. And what Dunbar learned from Pete Jenkins, I want you to go on YouTube and you type in Pete Jenkins Clinic. There's a whole bunch <laughs> of them on YouTube. I'm telling you right now, he at 80 years old, he is the godfather of defensive line coaching. And Dunbar has carried on his teachings for years and years and years at all of his stops. But again, looking at uh, when Dunbar was under him at LSU and everything that he took from there and then went off to the NFL and did his thing. Like if you just, if you watch Pete Jenkins teach the game and teach techniques and teach how to read blocks and how to react, they literally call it attack react technique, watch him teach and then watch the Steelers defensive line every Sunday. And you can see exactly what Pete, Pete Jenkins is talking about. And it is, it's remarkable how well, Dunbar is also a great teacher and communicator of, uh, of you know Jenkins' teachings. Um, he's 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 part of the line of the best defensive or some of the best defensive coaches in the history of the game, and the Steelers are very very lucky to have him. Totally agree, and it's why somebody like Mike Tomlin you talked about that is well respected and could probably pull just about anybody he wanted to be mm-hmm. on his staff. That's that's a two-way street. He can look at Carl Dunbar and say, hey, you, <laughs> like, I respect what you do. And Carl Dunbar can look at him and go, hey, coach, I, I respect what you do, too. He's, you want to come work for me? Yeah. Yeah, I think that'd be a really good fit. I, you know, make a bunch of killers for you in your front seven. Like, all right, come on board. Let's do it. Uh, looking at the free agency situation now for the Steelers, kind of getting into, you know, what Omar Khan did uh, in his first, uh, you know, weeks and months kind of working into the GM spot in how he's uh, he's working on this roster. Although I th- actually think Colbert might have been there during free agency. I can't remember exactly when Colbert stepped down, when that transition happened. But I would been a little be bit of bleed over. really surprised given those two's relationship and the fact that they were working the same office where probably about six months because this was an orderly transition. This was not yeah. a, hey, Colbert, you're done. Like they knew that this was coming. This was you know, orderly succession. And I'm sure he started looking to Omar and saying, you want to do this or not? Like, do you want to be saddled with this or not? Do you want this guy or not? Like, yeah, it's my stamp and I have final, but you tell me what you want because I don't want to do something that you really don't want. And they probably were talking about like that for years before that happened. But I have a feeling towards the tail end there, he was like, I'll start cleaning my desk out. You tell me what you really want and I'll, you know, I'll go through and approve it. Let's just assume that as vice president of football administration, he had a hand in building the roster regardless of when Colbert stepped out. But we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, In terms of free agency, quote unquote, losses, this can be anything from retirements to cuts to trades, anything of that nature. Pretty much pieces from last year's team that are no longer there. 
obviously quite a large chart. Um, they they did um, let a whole bunch of veterans kind of walk away. Uh, Eric Ebron as a backup tight end, I guess, is the best way to describe him. Fryermuth took that job pretty damn quick. Uh, Ebron is gone. Hayden is gone. Joe Schobert is gone. Uh, Roethlisberger is obviously gone, gone. He's retired. Uh, Ray Ray McLeod, who <laughs> many Steelers fans are not super fond of. Um, he did play a significant number of snaps as a slot receiver, but his main value, if I would put it that way, was as a as their leading uh, punt and kick returner. I think they decided to inject some new blood into the roster for this coming year for that role. Uh, Juju Sh- uh, Smith-Schuster is also gone. He's now in Kansas City. Uh, James Washington is now in Dallas. So they really gutted the receiving core outside of a couple, uh, a couple of their younger names they really like in order to bring in even more guys to round out that core. Uh, and then Trey Turner, which was the interesting one for me, he's in Washington Before we talk about Ray Ray and the rest of the receivers, I do want to talk a little bit about Trey Turner. There were a lot of Steelers fans that were uh, somewhat upset about that because they're looking at pressures allowed, and he only allowed like 20, 21 pressures last year, only cost $3 million, signed for $3 million with the Commanders, and then they spent um, almost $9 million on James Daniels, who, if we're just going off stats, allowed literally twice as many pressures. I want to reassure people that pressures allowed in last year's Steelers offensive line statistics, if you can even call them that, the opposite of inflation is deflation. They were very deflated because Ben Roethlisberger, I'm not even kidding, had the quickest release in the entire league. It was get the ball, get it out, get the ball, get it out. It it was not even close. Like He was the quickest time to throw at like 2.2 seconds on average. I have it right here. Um, yeah, it was like 2.2 seconds and he was, he was well ahead of Tom Brady, who was second on the list. And so there weren't a whole lot of opportunities for pressures to develop against the Steelers offensive line. So even though their quote unquote pass blocking efficiency was high, it was also because the ball was always out so quick that people didn't really have a chance to rush. When you actually watch the tape. I would say that James Daniels actually was a better pass blocker than Trey Turner was last year because even though Daniels gave up 40 pressures, on the contrary, Justin Fields held the ball longer than virtually anybody else in the league at well over three seconds. So I think there's a lot of context that goes into offensive line statistics, again, if we can even call it that. Um, And I would encourage people to watch them play because there is a reason why Daniels is getting almost nine million a year, and why Turner was was allowed to walk away for almost three million a year. It's there is a significant difference here, and I do think the Steelers upgraded. It's a terrific point, and I would say that the complete opposite was the case in Chicago as a Bears fan. The scheme, the yes, the play of a particular quarterback, but really scheme and uh, offensive line inconsistency in terms of rotating players through, not having enough players, having to take players off the street to fill out the starting roster, not the backups, all contributed to the fact that James Daniels had to try and do a job, a job and a half, sometimes two jobs. And whenever the offensive line is like that, it's only as good as its weakest link. And there were many weak links last year. So On pure statistics, not great. 
on play. James Daniels is uh, a... He's not even promising. He is a very solid young guard, ton of power, who I think is going to look better in Pittsburgh. I was sorry to see mm-hmm. him go because he was drafted by the Bears. He had done his job despite a lot of changes and bad decisions that are the Bears' offense. I think the stability that we talked about, the sort of unanimity of the way that Steelers offensive line is taught and coached to work together is going to work really well for James Daniels. And he, he's going to bring a lot of strength to that unit. You know, the 10 million may look on the surface like, Whoa, the guy we really liked was getting a third of that. It's true. But the guy you really liked is not that level of player in terms of his physical ability. He may be more experienced certainly in what you do once James Daniels meshes with that system, he's going to be really effective in Pittsburgh. I think Steelers fans are going to love him. Plus, I mean, as far as guard contracts go, I mean, he's not even close to Brandon no. Scherf. No. So I'd say you're doing okay there. But we'll get to him in a second. Um, in terms of gutting the receiving core, again, I think this was a necessary move. James Washington you know, had some flash plays during his time in Pittsburgh, but during his time in Pittsburgh, but just never really became what they hoped for. Ray Ray obviously had his role on special teams, but he's just he's not as good at it as the guy they brought in to replace him, quite frankly. So that was a perfectly acceptable guy to, to allow to move on. Um, and Juju, uh, really, after that one year where he was the big slot, but he had a true number one that he could kind of work off of uh, when AB was at his height. He really does need that. He really does need to be a number two on the inside with a quarterback that emphasizes the slot receiver like Ben did at that point. Um, that's really where he's going to be successful. He was never going to be a number one. Um, and I think going to Kansas City, I'd be very curious to see how they use him, if they use him as a big slot. While Travis is that you know, number one that he works off of, because uh, obviously Tyreek is gone now. You know, maybe Sky Moore is the number one that he works off of. But either way, as long as Kansas City is just using him purely as like a big slot, I think he'll have more success there than he did in Pittsburgh. Now, in terms of retentions, um, you know, obviously they spent a pretty big chunk of change here as well. Minka Fitzpatrick is the big, big one at over $18 million a year. One of the best, not just young safeties, but one of the best safeties, period, in the entire league, especially after they, you know, they spent a first round pick to get him and then he immediately became an impact player for them. There was no way he was ever going to leave Pittsburgh. It was just going to be a question of how much was it going to cost. And uh, I think 18 million for somebody of his caliber who can play free safety really well. You can put him at star. He blitzes well. He tackles well in space. He's a true do-it-all safety. $18 million a year, for me, for the value that he brings to them, is appropriate. In addition to that, though, the reason why he's so important to them is because they don't have any corners making more than $4 million a year. It might be the thinnest quarter or cornerback room in the entire league. So you better have an elite free safety that can cover these guys' asses because if Akella Witherspoon goes down, who they just signed back for $4 million, he played extremely well in the back half of the year when he was finally healthy. But again, we're talking about a guy who was only able to play 31% of the snaps last year. So 
if he goes down and you're down from your number one corner, like all of a sudden you're starting some UDFA from two years ago as a starting corner, and you better hope that Minka can pick up the rest of the slack. That's why he's getting $18 million a year is because he's probably one of the few safeties who can. But right now we're looking at a starting secondary of Minka. Um, they just resigned Terrell Edmonds as well, uh, Akello, and then Levi Wallace. The safeties are really the ones pulling the weight there. The Steelers made their choices. Uh, not only in the secondary, we'll talk about where they spent their money on the offensive line too. Again, we talked about Trey Turner moving on. They did spend some money to retain an offensive lineman, but this was the key. This is the sort of Steelers build up the middle, right? And even when we get into the free agents they signed from from other teams, they went out and bought a linebacker, right? They, they're they building up the middle. They love their defensive tackles. They love their interior linebackers. They love their edges as well. They have the best one in the league there. But they're paying up the middle. And Minka was, your point, never going to leave because he was good in Miami, he was great as soon as he got to Pittsburgh, and he did everything for them at a very high level. He was a great fit in their defense. He's a great fit in their locker room. It was all going to be a question of how much and when. 18 doesn't feel excessive to me. 20, 21, 22, that would have felt like, okay, he better continue to be that kind of excellent for the next three to four years, and he might. He's not you know, old enough that he's going to age out of that contract. 18 feels like a reasonable handshake where he can go on and continue to be the all everything in the back half of that defense. Um, they'll get their money's worth and he can, he can move around and be effective really at all three levels. Because as you said, star, he can walk right up on the line and blitz. He's not bad at it. He's not Jamal Adams, but in the back half, he's much better than Jamal Adams. So yeah. it's a, it's a real, it's a great match, and I love it that the Steelers found Minka and Minka found the Steelers, right? Because that is just the right place for him to be displaying all of his football skills at an incredibly high level. I also want to mention a core for their right tackle, who played you know almost all the snaps for them last year. A 25-year-old right tackle who is at least average to above average. Again, he has the same kind of deflated pressures smoke and mirrors type thing he allowed like 23 pressures last year which is great but again for playing in front of a quarterback who gets the ball out before most edge rushers can even get you know around the corner I would say that's more of a normal expectation than like a oh my god you know um like um Mitch Schwartz when Pat would hold the ball forever and still kind of allowed that same number of pressures that's why he's only making nine seven while Orlando Brown is trying to reset the tackle market at the very top of the tackle market at like 24. A core four is an average right tackle, but theoretically speaking, this is slightly below average money, so I would still say it's a value. It's not an overpay. It's not even really an underpay. It's an acceptable pay, which, I mean, how often do you see quality tackles get acceptable money now instead of just outright crazy money? I mean, again, Orlando Brown, who, who allowed so many more pressures than even is uh, you know reasonably expected from a left tackle is trying to reset the market right now so comparing these two likely deals i would say the steelers got the better one with a core four and a core four is where they wanted to spend their money again they said mm -hmm. we want the tackle right with that player with those two players turner and a core four we want the tackle 
we'll we'll do something else at guard. Turns out they opened up their checkbook and even spent a little bit more to get a guard there, but still much less than a top guard, like sure is making in terms of when I talk about top guard, I'm talking about top contract guards, right? He's making like 16 million a year. So Daniels at 10 seems like a reasonable pay for an ascending young player. And I think the way you characterize the Accor for contract is he is a good solid player in the system and that is a good solid contract for right tackle. So you're able to establish, you know, a side of your line for about 20 million for two players who are going to play at a good level and well within your system. In terms of uh, third-party additions, as I mentioned, uh, Levi Wallace was the other corner that they brought in for four million. Akello was a retention for four million. Levi was a, a, a poach from the Bills for four million. At this point in his career, solid number two. You know, I, I do not ever expect him to be. Uh, you know, like a 1A, 1B situation with Akello. Like, he is a number two. If they're going to be moving guys around and traveling, Akello's going to be the one that's traveling. Or if they want to go with the old, you know, Revis where Akello takes the number two and then Levi gets the double with Minka, maybe that's how they'll do it. But, you know, Levi's never going to be somebody I'm comfortable with leaving on an island with a number one, but he's only making four millions. So at the same time, it's still a decent deal for what you're getting, which is a quality, but not amazing starting corner they just wanted to allocate their money as you mentioned up the middle safeties linebackers defensive line uh mitchell trubisky was originally brought in to i don't even want to say be the starter compete for the starting role they did tell him ahead of time that they were looking at drafting a quarterback so he knew going into it that this was potentially going to be a battle which, for all accounts, he's ready to take on in, in training camp. He is only making 7.4, so regardless of who's winning the job here, either it's going to be rookie on a rookie salary or it's going to be Mitch at 7.4. Either way, the Steelers are going to be paying well below market rate for a starting quarterback, which, if they're even average, is great for them. Whether Mitch is going to be average, we don't know. Um, you know, Maybe that rehab year in Buffalo really did help him as much as uh, the media and agents are telling us it did, but we'll just have to wait to see. If, if he was, by the way, rehabilitated as a backup in Buffalo in like one year under Dorsey and Dable, I think that tells you all you need to know about Matt Nagy, that it really was more of a him issue than maybe a Mitch issue and the coaching failed him, but that remains to be seen. We'll see what happens in preseason camp. Uh, I did talk about James Daniels already. Demonte Casey, the other, other, other safety. He's not going to start over Edmonds, but when they go into three safety looks, like maybe if they do want to drop Minka or Edmonds down, Edmonds, you know, maybe as like a dime linebacker type situation or Minka as like a star on the opposite side of, uh, uh, of Sutton against like four wide looks. Casey would come in as like a dime safety and three safety looks and and play deep for them because I think he's better at it than Edmonds is. Uh, Jannard Avery, who's just going to keep getting jobs, one of your favorites, uh, brought in to be a backup linebacker and special teamer. Mason Cole to be their new starting center. It sounds like Kendra Green is not going to be in competition for the center role, and he's going to be battling against uh, Kevin Dotson for the left guard spot. So Mason Cole should be uncontested at center. And then uh, Gunnar Olszewski brought in to be the new return man and is probably going to be better at it than Ray Ray McLeod, I would bet. And the big one, Miles Jack, $8 million a year for a starting Mike linebacker that is 
way better <laughs> against the run than pretty much anybody else they have on the roster at this point. I think people are, at least people in Pittsburgh, are a little bit over Devin Bush at this point. So Miles Jack gives them a little bit more stability on the interior. And then who, as far as who's going to start next to Jack, we'll have to figure it out between, you know, Robert Splane, Devin Bush, um, you know, Buddy Johnson is probably the dark horse there, but I do think it's an open competition next to Miles Jack. And hopefully by the end of training camp, we'll figure out who the other starter is going to be. Could tell what Pittsburgh generally wanted to do here, and it was we're not sure about our quarterback of the future, so we're going to play both sides of the table. We're going to bring <laughs> in Mitch Trubisky, who we think has something to offer. I'm really interested to see Trubisky have a lot of history with scouting him at UNC. He was the Bears quarterback, moved to the Bills, obviously, after what was a disappointing run in Chicago. But a lot of times, uh, the times he did the best in Chicago, and there were very good times in Chicago, the offense looked more like Matt Canada's old stuff. Not mm-hmm. the stuff he ran in Pittsburgh last year. And you said at the top of the show when we were talking about Matt Canada, like, I'm I'm interested to see if he runs more of those boots and rollouts with plenty of motion to help the quarterback identify pre-snap. If he does that, Mitch Trubisky has the tools with limited reads and plus athleticism to be able to excel in that system. And he's got a great set of receivers as well. So if Dable's fairy dust worked, right, if that (laughs) magic sprinkle for a year in Buffalo turns him and he can be, as you said, he doesn't have to be amazing. If he is average, if he is medium, he's going to have some splash plays in that offense if Canada puts him in the right spots. Nagy didn't always, um, and I hope that he does because Mitch, by all accounts, is a pretty good dude. He is an excellent athlete, and he can be a really fun quarterback to watch when he is making plays in good spots. So it's possible, right? But the Steelers said, Mm-mm, we're not putting all our eggs in that basket. We're, we're going to tell him on the way in, look, you've got every chance to earn this starting job, but you're going to have to earn it. We're going to get a rookie as well. So I think it's fair in that way, but I'm really interested to see that synergy between Canada and Trubisky and the receiving core, because that's new for him as well, and how that works and how quickly that works and how quickly they figure out if it is Mitch that takes the starting reps at the beginning of the season, what it is he likes to do and what it is he's really good at, and conversely limit the number of times they put him in looks where he gets overwhelmed. Now, maybe he will take (laughs) rotations to a too high shell out of a single high look without looking like a deer in headlights. That was the problem (laughs) early in his career. It plagued him throughout his time in Chicago that Again, if he wasn't given as many clues as possible, and sometimes even when he was, when he got that shift, and it does throw a lot of young quarterbacks, but he never got over it. And it's kind of, it reminded me of a hitter going up to the major leagues who just can't hit the curve, right? And that takes a lot of guys out of baseball. They're a great fastball hitter. They can sit on a change all they want to, but man, you get a real curveball. And that's it. They got nothing. They just buckle. And those guys spend a lot of time in AAA. And I thought, "Mm, you know, if Mitch can't figure out defensive rotations post-snap more quickly and more accurately than he does, he's 
he's going to be a clipboard holder. Like he's got to figure that out. And we had a lot of conversations that he might be one of those late career guys. He might be one of those guys that the light comes on after five or six years. And he has a great run after being a backup for a bit, which he was only a backup for a year, but comes back into the league as a more mature starter. He's sat with some coaches and some other quarterbacks that have said, Hey, this is, this is your key for that rotation. Here's how you unlock that situation. If that happens, he's got every tool. He's a really good runner. He's fast. He's got a live arm. He could be a lot of fun this year, but so much about how Pittsburgh does this year is riding on whether or not that year with Dable was real or smoke and mirrors. Because Brandon Bean will tell you he's amazing and, you know, he'd let Mitch marry his daughter, which is what he said to pump up his value for trade. Um, You know, (laughs) I don't think that's the most reliable source necessarily uh, because of the vested interest, but it'll be fascinating to see how that all plays out in Pittsburgh. I, I, whenever I become a billionaire, which of course <laughs> is going to happen, EJ. It better happen quick. I really want to fund a study because everybody's trying to find, okay, what's the secret sauce for finding out if a quarterback can read coverages, especially post-snap. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of the times it's like either you can do it or you don't. We don't find out until you get to the league. And there's guys that come from all different backgrounds, all different programs, all different levels of football that have success just feeling it just feeling it like drew Brees couldn't see over the line but he felt coverage and i've always had a theory that it's kind of like a left brain right brain thing how Mm. like for me personally like i was really good at geometry yes fucking terrible at algebra couldn't Mm -hmm. do trig to save my life yep but the only math class i ever got an a in ever was geometry i didn't even study for the final and I aced it because geometry just, it was shapes and patterns and it it was space, you know, it was space. You're just looking and it it was more visual to me. And I kind of wonder if there's like a left brain, right brain distinction with some quarterbacks where they're not even reading a coverage and going through rules in their head of like, oh, well, this guy's dropping down. So it's obviously fucking flipping through a playbook in their head. Oh, it's this coverage they're reading space they're reading timing it's all about spatial awareness which i think is a left brain versus right brain thing and some guys can read space naturally and some guys can't and it really does become more about studying and looking at things pre-snap and kind of doing an equation in your head like algebra of like well this is what i'm seeing with motion pre-snap so it must be this I really do think it comes down to that. It comes down to if you're a left brain or right brain type person, because let's be honest, this shit's happening at a million miles an hour. You don't see everything. You don't have time to process everything. You feel it. You feel it. And and there's been multiple. I, I literally had a conversation with Kurt Warner, not to fucking name drop this, but I want to give some credibility to it. <laughs> not to name drop it, but Kurt Warner told me. I Years ago, I had a conversation with him. And we were talking uh, about that throw to Ricky Prohl that he threw. <laughs> that throw. And he said he just felt it. Sure. And I, I, it took me a long time to kind of understand what he meant by that. Yeah. And I truly do think that some quarterbacks, like some people call it instinct or, or natural talent, you just feel space. And I never mm-hmm. felt like Trubisky felt space. You know, Mahomes feels space. Allen feels space. Lamar feels space. I didn't. I never really got the impression that Mitch did. 
it's funny. He feels space, but not in a whole field sense. And that's what you're talking about is understanding how the other side of the field is going to shift either to your favor or away from it. He feels space individually. He has that knack. He can get away from people in the pocket. He does have a clock, unlike Daniel Jones, who obviously does not. That's one of his limitations, right? And he feels space between himself and the receiver very well. He has thrown some amazing balls on the move to people who are also you know, moving in dynamic ways across the field away from him, you know, breaking open late in coverage. And he has thrown some absolute dimes. Mm -hmm. And that is a feeling of space, but it is is kind of a linear understanding of space between you and one other player. When the blinders get a little bit wider and he's trying to feel edge to edge, oh, if this is happening, then the space or my opportunity is over here. It doesn't, it hasn't to this point of his career bled over into that. He can he can see a route or a route or two and say, yes, this or that, and then have that connection very solidly, very solidly at a at a super high level, because that takes an understanding of space and timing that is some people don't have that either. And he has that one, but he doesn't have the wide focus one. It's almost like fine focus and wide focus. Wide focus has not been his strength. Um, so I like you will be fascinated to see how that works. And if I was a billionaire, which isn't going to happen anytime soon, hate, <laughs> hate to break it to you. Uh, I would fund, uh, I would build VR to test quarterbacks on this. Oh and yeah, they, for sure. It came well, to my facility. I, I know for a fact, some teams already do, but oh, I don't know if they're allowed but to this say. Is, <laughs> this is the one thing I, yes, yeah. they do. Somebody asked me, cause I said something about this in terms of, um, Sam Howell in this year's draft class. Mm -hmm. I said, if Sam Howell brought, was, you know, if he was one of my visits, my pre-draft visits, I would dump him in a VR simulator and I would have him work specifically on this issue, which is funny because he's Trubisky's successor at UNC, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, quarterbacks coming out of a similar system with similar concerns. And I would say, you know, because I think if Sam Howell has high level recognition of this, he can be a starter a lot quicker than a lot of people think. If you look back at 2020, I would love to have, you know, 20 scripted plays and put them all in the same 20 scripted plays in VR and have exotic rotations in there. Not just single high to two high. That's, that's almost vanilla these days, but I would grab some exotics from the year before program them in and just track their eyes. Like, are they even seeing it? Are they even looking in the right place to figure out? Do they understand what's occurring? Because again, it has to happen very, very quickly. And if they didn't, hey, let's talk about how we can help you see that faster. But if they just plain old blank on it, uh, <laughs> you know, third round or later, fine. But nothing, nothing higher than that. Even better, I would just take the chip data from the pads from the games they've already played, plug that in, and then make him walk me through those same yeah. plays again because why not I want, I want fresh though i don't want him i don't want felt experience i want him to have to feel new things because that is the nfl right size speed different looks every week in terms of what's thrown at you a lot of things you didn't see in college or things you saw in college but once and now you're gonna see it you know 10 times or, a week or or you take sam howell and then you plug him in against georgia 
and say, okay, go deal with this. Right. Tell me what you got here. Yeah, that yeah. would be fascinating. And you could do all that stuff with that technology. So uh, it would be really, really fun. But it is a key skill for quarterbacks, that wide focus ability to understand what's happening. When people say the game slows down, it's that understanding happening very, very quickly with, like you said, not thinking it, but just feeling it. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Well, on that note, since we are now completely off topic, <laughs> uh, let's get to uh, the Steelers draft class uh, and talk about uh, two of these quarterbacks they brought in uh, and then two of these wide receivers that they also brought in, who you and I are both extremely high on. Top to bottom, uh, I was very, very, very happy with the Steelers draft class. Um, they weren't they weren't the thinnest roster ever, but they, they were in a position, in my opinion, where they kind of had to nail this one, and I think they did. They needed help from one of the largest draft classes in recent history, and they got it. And started right off, obviously, first-round pick, 20th overall. They take Kenny Pickett, the hometown guy, played at Pittsburgh, very experienced, the most experienced quarterback in this draft in terms of number of snaps. Uh, they know him very well. They share a... a uh, practice performance facility with University of Pittsburgh. So they've they've seen plenty of Kenny Pickett. And, you know, love him or hate him, I know a lot of folks in Pittsburgh loved it for the hometown connection. A lot of folks that are Pittsburgh fans that maybe aren't from Pittsburgh uh, are worried about limitations and what Pickett can't do. He does have really good mobility, better than average. One of the things that surprised me on his film when I went back was, man, he can really move, um, oh, especially yeah. getting outside the pocket. And I think a lot of people think he can't. He's a lot like Mitch that way. So you're not, Matt Canada is not going to have to take whole sections of the playbook out when one or the other of these guys come in in terms of mobility. Now, arm strength is pretty good. Accuracy, not as good. I'm not worried about the hand size. There's been a million jokes about Kenny Pickett's hand size. Um, but he did hang his receivers out a lot at Pittsburgh. His receivers took a beating, and that's not going to fly in the NFL. The windows are smaller, and the guys coming to hit your receivers are bigger. He's going to have to tighten that up. Um, we'll see how he fares in that battle. Round two, pick 52. One of my favorite receivers in this draft, George Pickens, the wide receiver from Georgia, had an injury, came back, didn't quite look like himself, but was still, in my mind, healing. If he's at full strength, he is in contention without a doubt in my mind as top receiver in this class and there were some very good ones if he comes back at full strength uh pittsburgh's not going to skip a beat they always have a very strong receiving core they sort of chipped away at the bottom half like you said kept the top half still got deontay and chase claypool like you add george pickens and a guy we're going to talk about in just a second to that wide receiver room and you've got a you're not missing a beat you're just reloading you know <laughs> not rebuilding Pick uh, round three, pick 84, DeMarvin Leal, the defensive end out of Texas A&M. I really think when he got picked to go to Pittsburgh, you and I were both like, oh, yeah, they're yeah. going to play him. 
They're going to play him at DN. They're going to play him at four or five, which is where we both think he needs to be. And he's going to be effective there. He's going to get coaching from Carl Dunbar. Like, okay, done deal. Like, the problem with DeMarvin Leal's film was Texas A&M moved him all the way to zero sometimes. They had him at one. They had him at two. And every time you moved him farther in, he got less effective. And every time you moved him farther out, he got more effective. And it, it seemed really basic on film as a sum total of play him, you know, no, no farther in than straight four, and you're going to get more out of him. And I think that's where he's going to play in Pittsburgh. So Carl Dunbar did, did you do see wonders um, with him? What uh, what he showed up to or showed up at um, minicamp weight wise as? No. So he was 290 at his pro day. Yeah. They they said come back at minicamp with 15 more pounds, and he did. They put him up to over 300. Yeah. Which to me he's, is like five tech all the way, 100%. Yeah, he's just going to stand there and, you know, seal edges. And he still has – it'll be interesting to see how much quickness he retains at 305. Um, but regardless of that, he is a very skilled player, great pick, and a terrific fit for mm-hmm. the way the Steelers are going to use him. Round four, pick 138. They pick up Calvin Austin the third, wide receiver out of Memphis absolutely electric little playmaker and i'm going to stress little because he is vertically challenged he is not a tall guy and i don't care (laughs) at all he is super fast he is ridiculously quick and he has great hands he beat just about everybody he went up against so if people say oh he's small he's not going to be pressed nah go watch his film at memphis also contributes a lot in the special teams game he's going to make an impact on the special teams phase he's going to make several highlight plays in the regular offensive phase it's a great pick, and it rounds out the Pittsburgh wide receiver room with some of the talent that they'd lost or some of the specific qualities that they'd gotten rid of. He actually brings more of those. So super excited about that pick. Round six, pick 208, Connor Hayward, the tight end out of Michigan State. Meh, it's a Steelers pick at tight end. He's going to be doing more blocking than he is catching. I'm not surprised. All the way down in round seven, pick 225, Mark Robinson, the linebacker from Old Miss. I should say the other linebacker from Old Miss. Uh, and then the last pick in round seven, I told you I don't get very upset about round seven picks, no matter what, uh, because they're round seven picks. They're basically lottery tickets. When the Steelers picked Chris Oladokun out of South Dakota State, I was pissed during the live stream. <laughs> I pounded the table. I wanted the Bears to get him either in the late rounds or or as a UDFA. Oladokun was the quarterback at South Dakota State, so if you watch Pierre Strong, you saw him. And when I saw him, I thought, and he didn't play at South Dakota State his whole career. He had ended up there late, and he actually took a break from college football, came back, ended up playing quarterback at South Dakota State, and he looked a lot like a different player. He was a guy with mobility. He doesn't have great size. He's about 6'1", but he's solidly built. Moves around very well, throws a very smooth ball, mobile guy, good decision maker. And I thought, hey, not a lot of people are talking about this guy. This would be a great backup to stash behind Justin Fields in kind of the take a flyer on Tyler Huntley mold to stay in the division, right? What the Ravens Mm -hmm. did with Tyler Huntley. Like take a flyer on Chris Oladokun and see if he's got anything. Put him on the practice squad. He's at least a guy that could provide you really good scout team looks from down there. And and at best, you get lucky, he hits, and he becomes a number two or a number three for you. When the Steelers picked him at 241, almost the tail end of the draft, I was pissed. I pounded the table. I was like, 
damn it, they saw the same thing. So he ends up in Pittsburgh, a great pick for them. But overall, what did you think of the balance? I know you said you liked the class. Um, who was your favorite pick out of this out of this group? Uh, well, I, I will say, first things first, uh, the reason why I know that they were looking at Pierre Strong was because they picked Oladokun. Because I think yeah. everybody went to South Dakota State uh, tape to watch Pierre Strong. And then they saw the quarterback throw the ball, and they're like, who's that? Because mm-hmm. I think they had the exact same reaction that you and I both had, where we get about 15 snaps into the first SDSU game, and we're like, huh, that's a seam ball, 45 yards down the field on a rope, far hash. Huh, okay. And then you see it again and again and again, and you're like, yeah, there's something there. There's something there. We don't know what it is. The Jacks are a lower-level program, but worth checking out so happy to see him get drafted uh in terms of the other quarterback they took kenny pickett i i liked pickett i struggled with i struggled mightily with whether taking him in the first round was the white was the right choice because i know the kind of quarterback class that's coming next year Mm -hmm. and kenny pickett is not on the same level as a prospect doesn't mean he won't be a better player in the nfl you never really know but as a prospect Kenny Pickett is not on the same level as several of the guys coming out next year. And I feel like the Steelers are so obsessed with never being bad that sometimes they're unwilling to let themselves reset when maybe a reset is a little bit necessary. And even though I like Kenny Pickett, I think he can be solid in the league. Um, I think his physical talent is underrated. I think he's more physically talented than some starting quarterbacks that are playing right now. I I would have rather them if it was again if it was me. I would have rather them spent that first round pick on a true blue chip talent because there were several at non quarterback positions that were on the board, and then you know maybe come back for Desmond Ritter on day two or Malik Willis on day two you know things that the Falcons did and the, and the Titans did where they were still able to get great players early on and still got a talented young quarterback that they can develop for a little bit I don't really think there was an appreciable difference that much of a difference between Desmond Ritter as a prospect and Kenny Pickett as a prospect they were in roughly the same neighborhood for me but I think the difference between a second or or a third round pick on Ritter or Willis versus a first round pick on Pickett is a pretty appreciable difference. So I don't necessarily dislike the player. I don't dislike the fit, but is he going to be enough firepower to take on Burrow and Mahomes and Allen and Lamar and really anybody in the AFC West? Um, and beat them because the AFC is murderer's row. Is he enough to ever do that? I have less confidence in that than I would on them just taking a talented player, starting Mitch, seeing if it works out. And if it doesn't, then you're in striking range of Young or Stroud or Van Dyke or Levis or whoever you want to go after in this coming class. For me, that that would have probably went, probably would have been how I went about it. But again, the Steelers are the Steelers. They never want to be bad. So they just they took their guy now. Different strokes for different folks. As far as the rest of the draft, uh, the Pickens and Austin duo at wide receiver I thought was tremendous. If there was ever a way to make Pickett 
be really successful early on. It's probably surrounding him with like the most insane young receiving core in the league in terms of total talent. Uh, Cause Deontay is awesome. Claypool has a ton of talent. Pickens was one of my favorite receivers in this whole class. He was like one of my top four guys in this class. Uh, Calvin Austin is exceptionally dangerous. Like this is a receiving core that a lot of people would kill for. So I thought they're at least doing a great job of surrounding Pickett with talent and Mitch with talent so that they can at least be as successful as humanly possible. Uh, DeMarvin Leal, full disclosure, I actually wanted him more to drop weight and play kind of like a Rashawn Gary size outside linebacker, like 265, 270. They're deciding to go the other way with it and make him 305 and play like five tech. I think either approach can work. I just kind of saw his skill set a little bit different because I thought his first step was way better when he was standing up. And I thought he had really good hips for his size too. So I felt like converting him to a linebacker where he's standing up and can kind of use that first step from a two-point stance and then use his hip fluidity to bend the edge. Uh, kind of like how AJ Epinesa made that same conversion for the Bills. I kind of wanted the Steelers to do that. They're going the other way with it. I'm going to trust Carl Dunbar because he's him and I'm me. So we'll just we'll leave it there. Uh, Connor Hayward is going to be a really interesting fit as like a, an H-back, fullback, hybrid type guy for them. Uh, best case scenario, he turns into their Kyle Juszczyk, so we'll see how that works out. He's got really good hands and really good ball tracking ability, so I think there's something there. And then uh, Mark Robinson, I, I had a, like a you know special teamer, backup linebacker, break glass in case of emergency type grade on him, so... I don't think he's going to play, but that being said, if there was ever a linebacker room where he might get some snaps, it's probably this one. Great class overall, and they didn't stop there. They grabbed a lot of guys that didn't get drafted as UDFAs. Uh, First one I want to talk about is Mateo Durant, running back out of Duke, somebody I looked at later in the process. It's funny because I had his name on my list really, really early. He was one of the guys that probably mid last summer I had on my list just didn't get to him for one reason or another when I got there I thought "Mm, this guy's going to somebody's camp for sure if he doesn't get drafted he's probably going to make their roster whether it's practice squad or otherwise talented guy can run between the tackles has more bursts than you think he might break some tackles I like his ability to stick in Pittsburgh Tyree Johnson DeMarvin Leal's running mate at Texas A&M, the edge. I, when I saw again, two days after the draft that he was going to Pittsburgh, I was like, Oh, the rich get richer. Like that's a great fit. He's going to, he's going to fit right in their system. He is going to be, I think the player you were thinking they might make Leal into, he's going to be that guy outside anywhere from a five to a probably seven tech. If you want to call it that. I thought his tape had some really good flashes, and if I have confidence for him to work anywhere in the league, uh, the Steelers were one of about five teams where I was like, yep, no, Mm -hmm. that's great. So they get him for free as well. We talked a little bit about the outside cornerback depth and the fact that it's not great if they suffer an injury. They are most likely going to be starting a player you haven't heard of. They get Chris Steele, the cornerback out of USC, who had some good size. The cornerback duo at USC both got looks this year. They're both considered draftable prospects on the outside. Steele had, I think, the better tape of the two. He still has a lot of holes in his game. Technically, he's got good size. He plays pretty well against the boundary, not as well going inside. Uh, But 
take a chance on him for free because, like you said, if there's any room in this league where he might get some run or make a roster, Steelers is a pretty good choice. So nice work by him and his agent. And then uh, you wanted to highlight Bryce Watts, the cornerback out of UMass. Yeah, I actually like Watts um, a lot better than Steele. And I know for a fact there was uh, another team that had a second-round grade on Watts, but medicals were, I, oh, I swear okay. to God, swear to God. I, I Trust me, I... I very rarely freak out about that stuff anymore because <laughs> I have learned that my eye is not calibrated the same way as a large majority of the leagues is calibrated. So I don't, I don't doubt that stuff anymore. I just go, huh, neat, good for you. But they they had a second round grade on him because he's really springy, like really explosive, great feet, all that kind of stuff. And you're like, okay, well, why do you go undrafted? Medicals. Medicals, medicals, medicals. Like, even when we were watching him um, at, at Shrine practice for as few snaps as he got, I don't think he finished a single practice the entire week. He got dinged up every single time he stepped on the field. And I don't know if there was just, like, an existing issue that he was battling through, which kind of sounds like there was, um, because I, I, I did check into it after he didn't get drafted, and all I heard was there, there was something that popped up in, in medicals. I don't know what. Uh, but he was already waived by the Steelers, even though they brought him in as UDFA. He was already waived with a, a medical settlement back in May. So whatever it was, was still persisting. And apparently it was it was serious enough that the Steelers didn't even want to didn't want to go through the summer and bring him into camp and all that kind of stuff. So best wishes to him. I hope he recovers from whatever it is that's going on. Uh, and I hope that, that he ends up, you know, being able to play in the league because he's a really, really talented player that a lot of teams liked a lot. Uh, there's just something medical wise that's, that's, that's keeping him back. Um, final segment, which this might end up being the longest <laughs> team preview show that we have, uh, team floor, team ceiling. This is where we kind of talk about the Steelers ceiling as we see it in wins and their floor in wins. Not going to lie, I, I have them as a five-win floor, but I know they're not going to hit that because Mike Tomlin's never had a losing season, and I don't think he's about to start. But I, I do think that their ceiling is like nine or ten wins at absolute max, and it, it would take another brilliant, you know, getting blood out of the stone type season for Mike Tomlin to get them there. Not because this isn't a better roster on paper than it was last year. It is. When you look at their schedule, though, their schedule is way harder than it was last year, too. I mean, the Bengals are the Bengals. They start out with them, and then they got the Patriots. And then I'm not even going to try to speculate on whether or not they're going to beat the Browns. It entirely depends on the Deshaun situation. But even taking the Browns out of the equation, the Jets are better. Then they got the Bills, then they got the Bucks, and the Dolphins are, are on paper amazing. The Eagles on paper are really good. The Saints are a threshing machine. They got the Bengals again, and then the Colts, who are also an AFC Super Bowl contender. The Falcons are a much improved team. You got two games against the Ravens after that. You've got the Raiders on the schedule who were reloaded. And then you finish off again with the Browns, who, again, who knows who the starting quarterback is going to be. I don't think they're going to be a losing team, but I struggle to think that they're going to be a double-digit win team either. Somewhere around eight or nine sounds correct to me, but I don't know about anything more than that just because of how crazy the schedule is. 
the schedule gives me pause and I you're the one that looks at the schedule more than I do I look at the talent and I look at the starting quarterback particularly because they're facing a period of somewhat recent historical uncertainty right there is no Ben for the first time in a long time so you could say oh Ben's this or Ben's old or Ben's still got plenty left in the tank it was always Ben right and now it's not Ben we don't even know who it's going to be could be Mitch could be Kenny uh, could be a combination of the two you never know depending on how that situation works itself out that's what I want to know before most of this but even in the best case scenario, even if the Dable Pixie Dust was real and Mitch comes in and he meshes with Matt Canada and they start off somewhat hot with this great receiving core, they still have to go through all those teams. And trying to add up 10 wins on that schedule is a very rough exercise. So the weird thing about 17 game season is eight games is losing season. It's not a tie anymore. It's not pushed by. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's even harder. Mm. Yeah. So they got to win nine if he wants to keep that non losing season streak alive, or eight and a tie possible with what Pittsburgh's done in the last couple of years. So I say nine is the ceiling because a lot of things have to go right at the quarterback position. And if Kenny Pickett starts, I know everybody wants to say he's the second coming, he's a local kid, and it's all going to go well. Rookie quarterbacks don't typically win double digits in their first years i don't care who they are and Pickett, i would say the chances are even a little bit less and that's not a knock on Pickett; it's a fact for rookie quarterbacks mitch has got to prove that he's fixed those flaws and come out hot in order to be able to do that it just feels like that's a lot to go right very talented roster obviously we've sung tomlin's praises and the staff's praises they're not going to be bad but I think they're going to do a very good job to get to nine wins. I know that's not what the Pittsburgh faithful want to hear, but that's what I see looking at it preseason. My floor five, they're not going to, they're not going to sniff five. They're going to be six, seven wins for sure at the lowest, but the absolute wheels fall off scenario for me is five. I probably should have put six. I don't think they're going below six with Tomlin as the head guy. And that's the thing is, uh... They're never going to be outright bad. We said it at the top of the show. They're never going to be outright bad. But if they're, quote-unquote, Tomlin bad, which is six or seven wins, at least that, I think, would put them in position with, you know, somewhere in the top 10 to 12 picks. Then you can maybe look at, you know, moving up for a quarterback or something like that. Now, you know, you got Kenny Pickett. So if if you're in that range, now you're probably looking to trade back, I would imagine, um, so it, it kind of changes. It's going to be interesting to see how it works out because it kind of changes how their future roster building is going to happen too. When you and I both think that it's highly likely they'll be somewhere in the top 20 picks in a very loaded quarterback class. Uh, again, this is nothing against Pickett. I actually liked Pickett as a prospect. I just liked a lot of the ones coming out next year more. So I think this is going to be a storyline to watch. And for all I know, I mean, I'm kind of a fucking moron. Maybe he'll end up being even better than I thought. And and this whole, like, uh, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Van Dyke, Levis conversation won't even matter. We'll see. Uh, but at least as of right now, uh, I think we're in kind of limbo. And I think a lot of Steelers fans might be a little bit uncomfortable with that. 
it's new territory for them, so they're going to have to get comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable while all this gets figured out. They can take great comfort in Mike Tomlin, you know, steering the ship and the fact that they're not going to be outright horrible. This is not going to be a three-win team. This is not going to be a four-win team. Never. It will they're, never be a three-win no, team. No. I, we don't even we didn't even consider that, right? They're going to see a competitive football team. They're going to steal a few games that they shouldn't win. They might lose a couple of close ones that maybe Ben squeezed out in the end for them and you're all real used to that because Ben's been around a long time. There's going to be some where you're you're going to look down or look at your seatmate at Heinz Field and say, man, Ben would have won that game. And you'd probably be right, but this is a new era for Steelers football. And again, there's going to have to be a little bit of comfort with discomfort as you figure it all out. Well, with all that being said, tomorrow is Bengals Day. So if you're a Steelers fan, you got all the way through this and you want to uh, listen to what you're up against in the rest of the AFC North. Obviously, we have the Ravens and Browns episodes already. We got the Bengals episode tomorrow. And then we got the AFC North uh, kind of macro division look coming out right after that on Friday, where we look at division awards, you know, MVP, coach of the year, offensive defense player of the year, rookie of the year, all that kind of stuff. So uh at at minimum come back for that on friday because we're going to be talking a little bit more about the steelers and then from there we're moving on to the nfc north and uh, i believe the detroit lions on monday so uh thank you for sticking with it we'll see you guys back here same time tomorrow same place and until then later take care